go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We walk by faith and not by sight. So we've just sung. The beauty of these tunes to which these hymns are set and the tendency we have just to move through everything in our liturgy, if you like, so quickly. It's a very stately liturgy, but we move through things purposefully, and we move on to the next thing in a pretty deliberate fashion. And the riches of so many of these texts are allowed to, if you like, sink like pebbles under a still and beautiful lake. Our joy is knowing that we'll come to encounter some of these texts again, and every time I look at these texts, I'm reminded that they usually say better than I am about to in far less time, far more than any sermon I will ever preach. This is no exception. We walk by faith and not by sight. No gracious words we hear. We don't hear from Jesus anymore as the disciples did as they walked with him through Galilee. But we believe him near, and through that belief, we do hear. Not as they did, but we hear each one of us very specifically. As we go through our lives, his words to us, his instructions, his directions, his promptings, his leadings through the Holy Spirit. To learn to hear Jesus speak, we have to learn how to listen. To learn how to act, paradoxically, we have to learn how to wait. Today's parable is about waiting. It's about waking and sleeping. It's about the great separation. It's a very rich parable. It's about these girls, sensible and silly, who are waiting. It's about us who are waiting, too. We've heard all the readings today about what is ahead for us. What are we waiting for? Are we waiting for the end, the day of judgment, the big bang, the end of the world, Jesus appearing as judge? Yes, but that's for Advent, and we can't get ahead of ourselves. (laughs) Are we waiting for the beginning, the beginning of Jesus' reign on earth, where he sits on his throne Jesus as Lord, seen by all, 
When Jesus comes to sit on that throne and faith and hope suddenly evaporate. They no longer have any meaning and only love remains. We could say, yes, we are waiting for that. But one of the things we already try to say very much in this church, rather biblical, I think, is that Jesus is already Lord, whether we can see him or not. If he is already Lord, and we've said he is, what then? What then are we waiting for? Not for something to happen to us, may I say, but for something to happen through us and to happen again and again, for all kinds of things to happen through us as we learn to wait and watch for the signs of Jesus at work in his world already all around us. Now, what does this story of these girls and their lamps, their torches, have to do with that? Surely this simple story has a simple message. Be watching, be waiting, be prepared. For what? Waiting for what? Our first question. For something to happen. Here we go again. No. Let's go back to the question. It's still a good question. What are we waiting for? What are we waiting for to happen? If Jesus is reigning now, we are waiting for signs of his reign. We're waiting to see where he is at work, waiting for us to join him. Good. And where would we see these signs? Well, we would look to see them where good things are happening in this world. Maybe. It all depends. What are we waiting for? A better question. Why are we waiting? What is our reason for waiting? For something to happen to us, something good? For something to happen through us, something good? You hear the difference. It's a very slight one, a little shift to you or through you, but a very significant difference. Now I'm going to press this difference a little and press the parable a little. It is usual to say that this parable is all about faith. And in places which are all about free will, faith has to be fueled, like a gas tank. You've got to rev up that engine so that you know you have it. Motivate people. Get them inspired and ready to go out and do stuff. With that reading, we could argue that some of the bridesmaids had more faith than others. Well, they had more fuel, and that got the oil in their lamps, and that got them going, where the others fell to the side. And there are wonderful songs and hymns to make sure that that interpretation stays in our minds long after the motivational speaker has been forgotten. And I think there is truth to this, may I say. They did have more faith than the others, and the oil is a sign of that. But the part of the story that interests me more is the possibility that the girls who had faith also had love. I jump to that because I come to believe more and more that Paul's great uh, troika, if you like, faith, hope, and love, are always found together. They're always three aspects of the same thing, at least this side. In the end, as I've said, we'll just have love. We'll have no need of faith 
and no need of hope because Jesus will be right there in front of us and the world will be under a new administration, hopefully one in which we are taking a part. But if the parable is about love, the question, what are you waiting for, takes on a different meaning. Love is all about being with the beloved, at least at the beginning, being with the beloved every minute of the day. If you're not with your beloved, especially in an era with no apples, blackberries, or Skypes, if you are not with the beloved, then you are spending every moment waiting to be with the beloved. And the test of your love, like your faith, is often found in waiting, in how long will you wait? What is it to you, this love? How long will you sustain it? until your attention shifts, your affects wane, and you start to look around you somewhere else. Separation, absence, can be the true test of a relationship. But if you can lean into the waiting, your love and your faith can be strengthened. Your faith in your love and in the object of your love can be powerfully, wonderfully strengthened by waiting. But to wait, you have to invest. You have to pay the price, the opportunity cost, opportunity lost. All the things you could have had and done, experienced in real time and real space with someone, anyone, are given up, sacrificed as you wait for your beloved. Choosing to wait, then, means choosing to be alone. Choosing lack over fullness, choosing absence over presence, choosing promise over fulfillment, choosing faith over sight. And faith is often trust that your absent beloved misses you as much as she or he says so. It means choosing for a time, for the time being, to go where things are not, and go away from the things that are. So, back to our parable. Both groups of girls wait. Now, on this score, both of these teams come out in the same place. They both fall asleep, as you remember, and they both wait until the moment that the bridegroom is coming. What's the difference? Some keep their torches burning. Maybe this is about hope, after all. And some let their lights go out. Some have paid the price. They came up with the cost of the extra oil. They invested in the possibility that waiting may go on and on. They set no predetermined limits on the duration of their waiting. They poured everything they had into the necessity of sustaining that vigil. They knew that the bridegroom was coming, and they were there for him, because this was all about him, and they were there for him to serve him, to be ready when he came by being ready at every moment, by being ready to extend that present waiting as long as he needed. They had to pay for that oil. They had to lug it out there in their little clay flasks to wait for this bridegroom. They paid a price that the others did not. The others acted the same, but differently. They set predetermined limits on their vigil, on their vigilance, on the duration of their waiting, 
their attendance upon the bridegroom. They really set the limits according to what was in it for them, if you like. They wished for the best. They hoped for the best. But if the best did not happen, they really did not have another option. They said at the beginning, enough is enough. We're here. But when the time come that the light was gone, they could not keep it going. So if this is about faith, about keeping your faith alive, someday, someday, until we shall see him as he is, then the parable is obviously calling us to get ourselves a lot of faith, somehow. This is where we look for that motivational speaker. If this is about love, however, then that day of waiting and that day of fulfillment is today, because all of these things are happening today. Today, as Jesus reigns, we shall see him as he is, in love and in acts of loving service. We shall be as those girls, the servants, the bridesmaids of the bridegroom. We shall join him in his work, for he is here already. The question then remains, where do we find him? How do we learn to wait and how do we learn to discern him when he is discovered to be at work? Paradoxically, we find him where he seems to be most absent, where he is being awaited even unknowingly by someone else. We read about all the saints, and whether we read about St. Francis or Mother Teresa of Calcutta or Henri Nouwen, we read about people who went from a place of fullness, people who really in some sense had something going for them, and went to a place of lack. People who gave up all they had and all they knew and all they loved to go and meet Jesus in places of the world's need, places without exception where they all felt singularly unprepared, unequipped, unready to face the tasks that were there for them. Why did they go there? They went for love. And love is there. As you know, I'm looking to the origins of our faith, at least that boost that our faith received, our holy Catholic faith in the Reformation era. And if there's one important text that is getting my attention these days. It's one that came from the year 1518 for Martin Luther. Not the thesis that got nailed to the door, but the Heidelberg Disputation. It's a terse and very difficult text. I think it unlocks a lot of the history of our faith, and it unlocks a lot that can help us today, too. It takes some determination. This is Thesis 28. The final article of the Heidelberg Disputation. I quote The love of God does not discover, but first creates what is pleasing to it. The love of man comes into being through attraction to what pleases it. Now read it again. The love of God, Luther is contrasting the love of God with the love of human beings, does not discover but first creates what is pleasing to it. 
does not find it somewhere. It makes it. The love of man comes into being through attraction to what it finds by sight, what pleases it. As Tuoma Manerma comments, God's love does not find, but creates that which is lovable to it. Human love comes into being through that which is lovable to it. In other words, God's love is directed toward that which is empty and nothing in order to create something of it and to make it exist in the first place. God's love does not find in its object what makes it lovable, but rather creates it. Human love, by contrast, turns itself or is oriented toward that which already is, something in itself, and as such is good and beautiful. Indeed, human love comes into being on the basis of the prestige and glory of the one that is loved. Human love always finds its object rather than creates its object. Now, this is a strong statement from Luther. Often he'll take a position which one finds a little strong, but that's how he does his work. And this is an important piece of work. It challenges a lot uh, that's been passed along in our faith about what love is. And what it says is that God doesn't wait to see something lovely in us or in anything else. He makes us lovely by his creative work. But what it says to us also is that if we are to love with God's love, which is very much what God is giving us in his Holy Spirit, then we too are given the chance of loving something into being which is simply not there to our sight and maybe not even in our faith. In some sense, it's a matter also of giving or receiving. God's love is a matter of giving. And our love, sadly enough, always have a lot of receiving tainted in it. The most noble love that we humans have still has in it at the end of the day, what is in this for me? (laughs) I'm sorry. Maybe that's just my experience. (laughs) If so, I haven't broken out of that mold yet in my own steam. Because human love is brought into existence by its objects, receives goodness and value from its object, it does not automatically, humanly, give goodness or invest value into its object. (laughs) Anyone a parent here? (laughs) (laughs) It takes a while, you know, especially... Well, for me, I know none of this comes naturally, right? I'd rather be, as someone said, a thermometer than a thermostat. I'd rather respond to what I see that's lovely than get in there and turn up the heat to bring something into a beautiful condition. Well, God gives us a way to be both through his love and through his Holy Spirit. Human love takes, then, it does not, by definition, give. In other words, as Manerma deduces, human beings always seek their own, that is, their own good, in the objects of their love. We love that which is lovely, period. 
We cannot love that which is not, which is empty or lacking or poor or evil. But God's love, by its very nature, is just the opposite, and thank God for that. (laughs) God's love is not oriented toward what is, but rather toward what is not. That is why God's love is not looking for something good to get to be gained from its object. Rather, God's love is poured out and shares its goodness with its objects. Now, we are permitted to do this through the grace of God with which he imputes his virtue to us and the grace of God which he imparts his very divinity to us inwardly through his Holy Spirit, how we parse those concepts of participation, divinization, theosis, will take some doing. Our traditions agree that both happen. Our Protestant tradition tends to put a lot of weight on the notion of imputation. So I'm going to go with that, and I'm going to read a little bit about imputation. This is the transaction by which God loves those who are not quite as lovely as they could be. Paul Zoll writes, Grace sees the image of God in men and women when the reality is the twisted image of fallen people implicated in original sin, people who have unsavory associations in the form of total depravity and are prevented by their unfree will from helping themselves. That's us. Grace looks on all that failure and imputes. To impute means to ascribe qualities to someone that are not there. We're not even saying potentially they're in there somewhere waiting to be teased. They're not there. Intrinsically, it means to ascribe qualities to someone that are not there, to regard somebody as a person that he or she is not. This is a tough love doctrine. Imputation calls bad things by a good name, and this is what grace does. Imputing grace looks on a pathetic person, all bound up and dependent on the opinions of others. That would be me and calls him confident. Imputing grace, Zoll writes, is how my sixth grade teacher treated me during an exam when I was afraid I had misunderstood a question and sat jittering and waving my hand and biting my nails like a sawtooth tiger. The teacher came over to this impossible little boy, put his hand on his shoulder, answered his question softly and kindly and added, I think you're going to do just fine. I think you're going to do just fine. I have never forgotten that, Saul writes. He treated me other than I was. All the jitters went out of me at once. Such is the force of imputation. Do you want faith, then, more faith? Let Jesus do his work of imputation through you 
and he will do it, I promise you. Let him show you the places of his love, the hard places where there is so little of anything else. Let him guide you to the places where he is really about to go to work through you. And when you get there, you'll shake your head and say, this is impossible. Good, says Jesus. Just what I've been waiting to hear. Now let's see what happens. Go where there is not, and let Jesus help you to create. Let Jesus use you to create. Let Jesus work through you to create something where there was nothing or precious little before. Trust Jesus. Expect him. Wait for him to do this for you, with you, through you, for someone else. It works. It works in this little church where we have people who go out and sit with college students and help them to become, or who sit with college students who don't know they're college students because they're probably not going to make it out of high school and help them find out what it is to have a teacher and what it is to have a father and, yes, to make it into college. Help people in this community who are called to hear senior citizens tell their stories once again, the same stories that have driven away their own children, and hear these stories with joy and delight as if for the first time. Help people in this community, and that can be all of us, get placed in a place where we're suddenly presented with a bunch of refugees off a plane who've come into this world not knowing the language, not knowing what they'll face. They've come from oppression, from brutality, from fear. And we don't know how we're going to deal with them. But we show up. And suddenly God is at work letting us shed his love into the lives of these people, creating in the space peace trust, confidence, and the power of his spirit. I'm convinced more and more that the key to growing your faith is to get out of there and act in those acts of service. Look for those acts of service that will get you out into the world. If you want faith, you can huddle in a room and light a bunch of candles and hyperventilate. Yes, by all means. Or you can listen to some motivating speaker, junk food, who will fan you hot for about five minutes. But if you want the faith that expresses itself in love, you can get out, get up and go out before the cold night has seen the dawn of Jesus return to earth. Say in your soul, Jesus, you are Lord Let me obey now, and let me do something for somebody. And if that is your prayer, I promise you, you will not go alone. Amen.